What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Comet ML Open Office Hours powered by the Artist of Data Science. It is Sunday, August 8th. Super excited to have all of you guys here. Hopefully, you guys got a chance to tune into the podcast that was released earlier this uh, weekend on Friday. Had an episode with the one and only Jonathan Tesser. I think you guys might recognize him from LinkedIn. He's uh, got a lot of awesome posts, and uh, it was a really enjoyable conversation I had with him. So definitely go check that out. Some other big news, have my last day at Price Industries on Friday, and I'll be uh, embarking on a new journey here with my friends at Comet ML. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, also, thank you guys so much for helping us cross that 75,000 download mark for the podcast. So uh, able to, to crack that. That I mean, I'm, I couldn't have done it without you guys. So thank you so much for, for all your support. Yeah, super excited to have everybody here. Shout out to Marin, Mohammed, Mark. Awesome, what's going on, man? Um, so we are live. We're taking your questions. So if you guys got any questions, whether you are joining us here on Zoom Room or on LinkedIn or YouTube or Twitch, I'm keeping an eye out for all of your questions. So go ahead and uh, let us know what your questions are. And actually in the link for the description of the video, if you want to join in on the live session, you can just click on that link and it'll take you uh, right into the room. So definitely excited to uh, have you guys here. Um, how's everybody doing, man? What's the uh, What's everybody up to, man? Mark, how you been, man? How's your weekend been? Been busy. Been working on a, a case study, uh, just trying to figure out, you know, various data problems. Got to play around with some Monte Carlo simulations. It's just super fun. I've been wanting to do it for a while. Um, so it's having a good time playing with data. Nice, man. Yeah, I haven't done Monte Carlo simulations in such a long time, man. Those are those are a lot of fun. I remember we used to do those in the actuarial days when. Uh, and we're trying to simulations and whatnot. Obviously, that's what we use Monte Carlo for. What's the what's the case study you doing? Is it for like a for work or like a personal project or just intellectual curiosity? Uh, per, personal project, but just basically, you know, my friend a couple years ago, he he's a Bayes, Bayesian thinker, and he started showing me uh, Monte Carlo simulations, and it blew my mind because he basically did the the typical thing like, hey, what's the probability of uh, flipping heads? Right, it's fifty percent. But then you flip it 10 times and it's like seven to three. You're like, what's happening here, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think it's like a really cool uh, way to visualize. I'm a visual, visual learner. So I think it's a really cool way to visualize uh, kind of distributions and, and think about probability. Yeah. And so uh, right now I, I did a simulation for like a craps game and then ran a uh, Monte Carlo on that. And then depending on the various like bias dice you do, like where are the... Uh, potential outcomes and also like potential uh, money you can make from it. So I'm getting expired for like a cool tutorial to put out later. Yeah, my whole thing, man, when I go to the craps tables is it's always six, six and eight or potentially nine because they have the highest probabilities of turning up. If you're going to shoot the die a hundred times, then you'd expect to see those numbers come up far more frequently. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting thing that you're talking about Bayesian thinking, Bayesian epistemology. I've been thinking a lot about that as well. I came across this podcast um called increments and it's with uh vaden masrani who is a phd uh student at university of british columbia and uh, i think his name is brian uh shugs or something like that who's there he's a computer scientist now now going into law and they had this series of episodes and that was all about the philosophy of probability and uh so there's three episodes back to back and i've been listening to like this one episode um like multiple times just because it's like mind-blowing like blow my mind that the type of stuff they're talking about uh so it's really really interesting stuff man uh, i can send you a link to that podcast if uh if you're interested oh 
that that would be great because I, I don't come from a Bayesian background. It's like a foreign language to me because like I, I come from clinical research where a lot of it's frequentists. Um, that they, yeah. they are making that switch for some people for that, that Bayesian thinking. But like when I think statistics, I think, you know, frequentist perspective. Yeah, I've, I've kind of adopted this motto for myself where I'm Bayesian in my own personal decision making, but I am frequentist when it comes to experimentations. And I was reading this interesting paper. Uh, I'll send you the link to the paper as well, but it's, uh, it's called Bayesian Frequentists. And it's these people who are like me who think Bayesian-like by default, but then apply frequentist tendencies to when they experiment. Uh, so I think you will really, really uh, enjoy that. But yeah, speaking of being a visual learner, man, like, like that's huge for me as well. Like I used to think that I wasn't a visual learner until I started seeing stuff presented visually and I was like, it makes so much more sense. Uh, so part of the, you know, as you guys know, I'm starting the 21 days of deep learning starting tomorrow, uh, which is going to be a fun and exciting challenge. Um, and I'm heavily relying on a lot of visual type of material. So uh, there's deep learning illustrated, which has been phenomenal uh, grokking deep learning. And this is all just, it's awesome because they have like all these like cool, like sketches and, and, uh, little cartoons in there. Then there's this one, dude, this book is massive. It's like literally, I think about six pounds, but it's about 700 something pages, deep learning illustrated by, uh, Andrew Glasner, who's super, super entertaining. I saw some, um, deep learning crash, crash courses with him online. I was like, this guy's funny, man. I need to, I need to get his book. Uh, and it's been super helpful so far. Uh, 723 figures, no math in it at all. Um, just beyond basic arithmetic and, and stuff like that. He really makes it really simplified. Um, there's some math in there, but not too much. But it goes deep from, um, it starts with just the basic fundamentals and then moves all the way into deep learning. So I'll be leaning on these three resources for the 21 days of deep learning. None of the content I'm creating is pre-crafted. Everything will be done the day of. And I'm really time boxing myself to three hours to create the content, two hours to kind of study the material, take notes, and then one hour to create some type of content, whether that's a write-up or an infographic or, or something along uh, those lines. Uh, I think that'll just help get me prepped for this new role at Comet. We'll just be <laughs> knocking out con content on a on a deadline and uh and just getting getting into that mode so hopefully you guys will be joining me on that journey starting tomorrow 21 days of deep learning um we got a whole whole slew of uh stuff up uh that being said man let's go let's take some questions from the audience man i'm, I'm excited to uh i'm excited to take some questions we got muhammad saying he's a newborn in the field of data science and programming just here to learn new stuff awesome man hey well if you got questions whatsoever please do let me know be happy to take on your questions. Uh, Mohammed, why don't you, why don't you uh, join us for this conversation? Tell us a little bit about where you are coming from in your journey. Like you're new in the field of data science and programming, but what have you been doing up to up till now? Well, it's uh, basically been like a week now. I'm quite new to this. It's like, I'm really excited about this. I've just started a 14 day challenge on Python. And basically, I know nothing about program. Okay, so so it's quite exciting. Yeah, awesome, man. That's that's good. I'm I'm glad you're excited about it. Just keep that momentum going, keep that enthusiasm up. And I would say, like my absolute favorite resource that I like to send people to when it comes to learning programming, it's a free resource too, and it's entirely web based. I'll pull it up in a second here. 
Uh, it's entirely web-based, so you don't have to worry about downloading the stuff and getting the packages and all that stuff. Uh, you can just focus on learning the syntax. And it's called Python Principles, and I'll pull it up right here. Um, it's, yeah, Python Principles, and they it usually charges, but they're given away um, free subscriptions. And I think even just like the, the charge is nominal. It's like 30 bucks, whatever. But um, I have password here for this or not. We'll see. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, and it, it takes you through the entire basics of um, Python syntax. So it's definitely a useful uh, resource. And just to kind of show you how it works, let's go to this introduction. It'll have this, and then you have your code here and the output here. So everything is entirely web-based. Um, so I highly, highly recommend this. And it gets cool because after you go through all the modules, you can go to the challenges here. And some of the challenges are really fun and interesting to do. They'll um, test your ability to write interesting functions. And this will kind of get you prepared for those coding challenges that come up in data science interviews. Um, I mean, this will help you build the confidence to do those type of problems. Um, so definitely check that out, pythonprinciples.com. Hands down, one of my most recommended resources. There it is, right there. There's a link for that. Um, what were you doing up until uh, up until now? What's uh, what's kind of your background? Where are you coming from? In terms of like education, work experience, stuff like that. Mohammed. Oh yeah. Well, basically, I just uh, recently graduated with an engineering degree, but I realized that everything is just data centric these days so i thought why not i have a little bit of free time so why not learn a little bit about machine learning and programming and just exploring it all what kind of uh, engineering in particular were you studying a civil engineer okay so i would recommend doing this too as well right if you have that in undergraduate studies graduate studies how far along are you in that uh, undergraduate okay so I would, I would recommend doing this, man, like looking up case studies that involve data science, machine learning with um, civil engineering. So you could do this, right? Civil, civil engineering and then machine learning and then look up uh, PDFs because they're white papers. Well, I don't know what happened there. Um, and just check out some of this stuff. They like, look, look like these guys got a book, Machine Learning Techniques for Civil Engineering. Uh, machine learning and data analytics for civil engineering so this is looks like a class syllabus but still it 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 will make you feel like you're not starting completely from scratch if you're able to find the intersection of what it is that you already know how to do with data science and then proceed that way um, and then i think that might even help with um keeping up with the enthusiasm and that motivation if you're like oh okay look this is how this thing um works in my field right and you can start to view things from, from that perspective, if that makes sense. So uh, you can even remove the PDF part and just look for blog, you know, probabilistic machine learning for civil engineers. That's the book. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I recommend as well, looking into that as much as possible. Cool company oh, if you want to see like, an, oh, sorry. I was saying a cool company if you want to see like, civil engineering and and practice or like machine learning is this company called one concern uh essentially they use ml and various like kind of sensor signals to understand a, a city's uh infrastructure and 
kind of predict the impact in the hot the the high uh, risk areas for natural disasters and when natural disasters happen, where to where to prioritize resources. It's really cool. I, I think a few years ago, the the founders came and talked talked to our class, um, and it was just really amazing, kind of how they they approached it. There are a couple of PhDs from from Stanford who um, just kind of stumbled on it. It's like a thesis kind of class project, and then just turned into a company, and they start getting government contracts. That's pretty cool, man. What's it called? One concern. One concern. I'll go put it in the chat real quick. But uh, I thought it was really cool because, you know, it takes all that sensor data from like simple engineering and just like just the city's landscape and all, all the intricacies of that analyzes it and is able to simulate like, hey, if like a flood happened, right? What area should you prioritize first? Yeah, I was actually I was interviewing for a company that, that kind of did, did something similar to this one concern, but also was an intersection with civil engineering. Uh, They're called Urbint. U-R-B-I-N-T or something like that. Um, so check check them out as well. Mohammed C, if you can look through their blogs or their postings to see what kind of work they're doing and you know, just to to get good at that intersection of machine learning and what you already know. It just makes it much more approachable. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to uh to taking everybody's questions, man. So if anybody got questions, go for it. I'm monitoring all these streams here. Don't see any questions coming in, just some uh some nice comments. Uh, ben saying that we're troopers, resource for the data community. Thank you very much, Ben. Poor is saying he's roughing it out in 28 degrees Celsius and sun um, in France. He's suffering for all of us. Thank you, Tor, for <laughs> for suffering from, for all of us. Pedro saying Python principles is awesome uh, and says that challenges are great to support gauging learning pathways progress. That is awesome. Um, right on, man. So if anybody has questions, man, let's go for questions, comments. Let's. Uh, Take them. Is this the same tour working for the audit company? Yeah, that is the same exact uh, tour. Haven't seen him in quite some time. He's, he's out Why there. isn't he here? I miss him. <laughs> because, man, he's out there enjoying the sun. He's out there enjoying the sun and, and listening in on the live live stream. Um, Asha, what's going on? Good to see you again. Nice background. Uh, thanks. Nice to see you again. Yeah. Is that. Uh, you got some chemistry going on in that background. Is that what's what's happening? Is that like a new thing you've been yeah, trying by? to? Yeah, that's my background. That's my oh, really? usual background. I did not know. Yeah, that. I did pure chemistry. Wow, it was uh, that's yep. pretty interesting. Did, do you find yeah, any that's intersections? Why oh, because that's why you're uh, not about yet, but that's the plan. Yeah, that's the plan eventually to circle around to it, but not yeah. yet. Ah, nice. That's cool. Uh, let me know if you guys got questions. Parath, Mohammed, Marin, Rasha. If anybody got questions, let me know. We can't, we cannot have an office hours without a uh, an exchange of questions. And and it. I mean, sure. Yeah, go for it. Sorry, sorry. I feel like I interrupted you. No, I'm just killing time and like filling dead space until people ask questions. So, yeah, go for it. If if I freeze up, please tell me. I've just seen a notification. Your internet is unstable. Okay. Tell the robots to stop. Um, so my question is, when you go into a role, a lot of, and you, you, like you're given one off project, I need you to do this and this and that. You're not even done understanding how, like, basically you're very green. I am very green. I don't understand how the business works. I don't understand 
exactly how everything runs for me even to do the analysis. How do you approach this? Do you go sit with the customer team? I remember Mark saying he went to sit with the customer team to understand the whole business. Do you just wing it? How do you do it? Questions, ask a lot of questions, sit with a lot of people, right? If you're put on a project, like for example, like at Price, uh, they had me work on a project where I had to essentially create, um, it was a regression problem and I had to provide a prediction for what was called a uh, suggested multiplier, right? And um, me attempting to do that on my own would have been very, very bad because I had zero context about the business. I had no idea how these people were making their decisions, right? So I was essentially trying to create a system that would model a human decision maker's decisions, but without actually sitting with them and talking to them and understanding what they do, I wouldn't be able to model that system, right? So but for me, they flew me out to Atlanta and I was in Atlanta for like a week, just sitting around with the people who are doing this, this work and just picking their brains like, hey, just let me just watch you, how you work. And then just, if you can just give me color commentary as much as possible, like what are you thinking when you are looking at this particular request? What stands out to you? Um, and just try to understand what it is that they are looking at as a human so I can encode that in the form of features for my system, right? My machine learning system. Um, so it was just a lot of, a lot of just interaction in terms of questions and trying to understand their process, right? And it might be different for you know another use case. Um, Mark, do you remember this example for the customer um, success that Asha is referring? Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think this 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 kind of how I think about things for when it comes to data science and like quickly understanding the business is I think what separates a, a okay data scientist from a great data scientist is just like your ability to create amazing assumptions and keywords assumptions there. And so when I first start with a project, I basically have a list of like business assumptions that I have and I need to validate each one or prioritize which ones I want to validate, right? And so uh, I think Harpreet's example is really great where you actually got to fly out and see <laughs> exactly what I was doing. So you can like, quickly see if assumptions are correct or right. Um, sometimes you don't have that option. And so I would say like, all right, this is the type of analysis, this is how I'm framing it. These are the assumptions that need to happen for this to be true. And so then I start going through, I, I prioritize like what's the most pressing assumptions from there. And then I start reaching out to people. So if it's like a small company, I'll like slack the person in charge of it, or I go try to find documentation within the company to validate that. If not, then I start trying to schedule more, more and more meetings uh, and really try to balance that out between kind of like the project timeline itself and, and try and get closer and closer. And what's useful about having those assumptions is that now when you share your results, you can lay out what those assumptions are. So if there is something wrong, and there's most likely gonna be something wrong every single time because you're not gonna get everything, right? Because you laid out your assumptions, when you share it more broadly, the one person you miss can be like, hey, actually, that assumption's a little wrong. We just changed this last month, right? And you can update over and over again. And so I think for me, and Harpreet, please correct me because this is coming more so from a startup perspective, but I don't really try to focus on getting, understanding the business 100% because that's just that's just a challenging thing to do. My job is to do the data, not be the business professional. <laughs> um, I try to create a framework to be wrong quicker, if that makes sense. So I always give high quality work and, and I feel confident in the result I give, 
But I have a framework where if it is wrong in some certain area, we can always constantly improve it because I listed out those assumptions for the business. Yeah, I like that approach a lot. And I mean, it, it comes down to just the problem that you're working on, the problem you're solving, and just understanding how solving this problem is going to impact the business, right? And why is this even a problem for the business that is necessary to be solved, right? Like what, what pain points is this problem that I'm working on causing the business, right? So in my situation, it was we had a lot of really high-level executives who are spending a lot of time approving these requests, right? And we need to minimize the time they spend approving these requests so that they can focus on other more important stuff, right? So that was kind of like the pain point. And, you know, it was like, okay, if, if we can have something where we can just have a suggestion pop up where it says, you know what, based on similar things that look like this, this is what we think the um, suggestion or the prediction should be, right? And just helps streamline a process. So just understanding the problem that you're working on in the context of like, you know, how it impacts the business, I think would be or rather interesting. Um, I see some questions coming in here. Uh, Austin says, uh, Austin, actually, you could just uh, read out your comment. Good one. Yeah, I, I liked what you were saying there, Mark. And it sort of reminds me of, and I, this has been stuck in my head because I had this conversation with, um, we did an industry meetup with the a couple of folks were at Boza with the CEO of Gradio and the CEO of DeepNote, sort of on collaboration ML. And there's just like a lot of focus on domain expertise and sort of how data science doesn't it like exist within the realm of like leaning on and relying on uh, domain expertise. And it's sort of what you were saying is almost like a mental model version of the way you might want to validate like a domain specific no or model, not just on a validation set of data that's sort of like set in stone, but actually by putting it in the hands of those domain experts, um, letting them formulate the challenge to the model, like the adversarial challenge to the model, and then sort of give you feedback on like, oh, this is performing like we wanted it to, or it's not performing on this sort of case that you as the data scientist, in the case, this analogy is like to the business perspective, might not be aware of. So you create those quick assumptions, you create a quick version of a model, you validate it with domain expertise in the real world, and then you can just sort of iterate more quickly so in this case, it's on the model, but in, in your case, it's like your mental model iterates more quickly. So you can actually like incorporate that feedback without um, spending too, too much time, uh, you know, getting in, into the, into the weeds you don't belong in, I guess would, would be how I, I would word that. I like that set kind of echoes what Mark was saying, like try to be wrong as fast as possible by just creating a, a solution thing. Does it work or not? Absolutely. What can we do? What can we do to, to improve that? Awesome. Um, Real quick, a key thing I want to note too is I guess I think something that a lot of like early data professionals, I'm still an early data professional, but like early, early, like the first mistake I made was I didn't communicate this fact that like we're working through uncertainty many times. And so when I presented results, people thought that that was the result, especially when I work with like sales individuals because they're like, they just want to get something out to the customer to get that buy-in really quick. And so being able to communicate early on, like, hey, here's the uncertainty around this and like how we've quantified that in a way that that gives you more leeway to have those that change management. So when you do like update your assumptions, you're able to communicate like, hey, these assumptions were, were changed. This is how it impacted this where it was before. And I think that communication piece is super important because I totally missed that when I first, when I first started my data, first data science job. And I, I definitely got some bruises <laughs> uh, through that. So a big part of that too is the communication aspect. Some good questions. I mean, sorry, good comments coming in from the uh, the chat here. 
Uh, Pedro says, understand the business problem, the outcome, and the success criteria, and you need to spend time with the customer or end user. And he's uh, talking about this thing that I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of, the Genchi Genbusto principle. Genchi Genbusto principle. Uh, go see for yourself and understand. Uh, I like that. I will copy and paste that here. Genchi Genbusto. I'm saying that right. Poor is saying that uh, assumption validation is key. Assumptions can be can be changed. The key is to properly evaluate and support them. Uh, Pedro says that an assumption is a lack of enough information. You can make them. It then validates them. The road to nowhere is paved with the best intentions and incorrect assumptions. There's just a whole like discussion about assumptions and biases in the LinkedIn chat. Um, awesome. Well, great question, Asha. Thank you for asking. Um, yes, sir. Please go for it. I just want to shout, give shout out to your actually podcast with Adam Vutawa. I, I like it a lot. Uh, the guy talked about how do you approach business problems from a data science point. I sent the link, and it yeah. was really very, very uh, not eye opener because some of the things I knew, but. The guy has been through this and he knows what he's talking about. And I like it a lot. So Asha, this is a very good thing to watch. Uh, yeah. I, I liked a lot his point of, hey, I don't know what this is about, but you're a smart guy. You'll figure it out. Yeah, so. that's, uh, that, that was a really, really good um, chat. Well, that's actually, it wasn't a, wasn't a podcast episode. It was a, a presentation uh, yeah. Data the, Science Go the, data, data Science Go, yes. Yeah, sure. so uh, for anybody listening post, uh, you know, post live, it's the future of data science with Adam Votava, CEO at Data Diligence uh, from the uh, Data Science Go virtual conference in April of 2021. Uh, that was hands down my favorite presentation of, uh, of the day. And Marin is right. I think, Asha, this will definitely queue you up um, quite perfectly for, for your question. Yeah. Uh, thank you for reminding me of that, Marin. I mean, I, I do so much stuff that I sometimes forget the stuff that I do. Uh, but yeah, that was a really, really good uh, chat. Thank you for reminding me. Um, some questions coming in. There's questions in the chat here. And then there's questions in um, in LinkedIn. I, I, let's, let's tackle the ones on LinkedIn. If you guys don't mind, let's tackle those first. And then um, we will uh, move on to the questions in the Zoom room. Hope you guys don't mind. So a uh, question coming in from Pedro uh, on LinkedIn. He's saying he is introducing machine learning as a new competency and learning pathway for data engineers at his company. Uh, what do you suggest in resources to start with? Um, that is a good question. So you got data engineers who you're trying to uh, increase the competency for machine learning. So I'm assuming as data engineers, they're probably already good with coding and 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 all that stuff. So that's not going to be an issue. They probably need to focus more on um, foundational concepts and things like that. Um, one of my favorite books, and and I think it's a community favorite book, is uh, Aurelian Duran Aurelian Duran's book. I, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Uh, and that's um, hands-on machine learning with Scikit-Learn and TensorFlow. I think that's a great introduction to machine learning book. Um, another book that, you know, like disclaimer, I've only ever had this book for like a week. This is a really good book, uh, Deep Learning Illustrated. And I know it says deep learning, but the first 300 pages of this book is dedicated to just the intuition of machine learning. And it's um, provided with so many visuals and visual, visual examples, very little math. It makes it really, really intuitive 
to understand uh, just to give you a um a sense like the the part one is uh six chapters that covers everything from um you know an overview of machine learning the essential statistics that you need uh how to measure performance base rules curves and surfaces information theory then it goes into classification regression so on and so forth um really really good book highly recommend this one um very minimal coding examples um so it's just purely just for intuition so highly recommend this one hopefully that was helpful uh question also coming in from uh arundati um in linkedin so arundati's question is uh what can what can be data model or machine learning algorithm used to predict data when you have data for last six months it's a big big question uh, i would need you to clarify that a lot further for me um arundati so i mean that's uh I cannot answer that question as it is stated uh, without making many, many assumptions, many of which will likely be incorrect. So if you could provide more information, that'd be helpful. Uh, oh, let's uh, turn to the questions into the chat. Mark, you have a question? Yes, you do, right? Yeah, I did uh, from our from the office hours on Friday. Mm -hmm. So it's in uh, in all transparency of like, not knowing things even though i sh potentially should you know i i have a master's in like research design and i struggle with the sample size calculation uh, we were talking about this just again being a visual learner completely messing up i just overthink it and the main challenge i have is it was to my understanding that when you create a sample size you need to have a known like treatment effect um, like what's the effect you're, you're trying to have and that typically how you're able to get the sample size. And so you'll typically look at like other research to see what's expected. But many times when I'm working on data problems, it's just a completely new use case. And so the treatment effect is completely unknown. And so how do you determine a sample size when you have these levels of unknown? Uh, I think for sample size, it doesn't necessarily take into consideration treatment effect. It takes into consideration power. But in order for you to estimate power, so when you're doing a sample size calculation, um, you kind of can proclaim that this is the power that I would wish to achieve for this particular statistical test. And you can just proclaim that up front, right? So, um, so that that's, you wouldn't need to have an estimated effect size to calculate sample size. Sample size is typically going to be just, you need, um, oh, it depends on which distribution you're sampling from, because each distribution will have its own calculation. but You'll need, you know, standard deviation, uh, level of significance, power, and um, something else depends on the distribution again. I'm blanking, um, but to to uh, to do a power analysis, right? That's when you would need the treatment effect size if you're trying to find the right power. Right. I think that makes sense. I think that's where I'm being tripped up is that like, so I guess when you're doing a sample size, just the assumption is like, this is the power we want. And this is yeah. the sample size. And so I'm trying to do too much where I try to get the sample size and the power. And so that's where I'm getting tripped up at. And so I guess like when you're making a sample size, not necessarily is okay for you to make up a power, but is like a general guide, like this is the power something you're moving forward with. 
Yeah, you just okay. proclaim, yeah, that this is the power that I wish to obtain. <laughs> I think that's the key part that I miss in all my classes that you just proclaim the power. I just, yeah. I've been trying to solve the for the power and I'm like how I don't have the treatment effect. So I guess the next question then is, all right, so you're trying to determine power, but you're working on a completely novel thing, which is typically happens in industry, right? Uh, how do you determine power if you don't know, like if there's no other reference point? Is it just through experimentation? So let's kind of think back to like what the definition of power is, right? So when we talk about um, power is essentially one minus beta, where beta is the probability of committing a type two error, right? So if we want to minimize the probability of competing a type two error, that means that we want that beta to be you know, as small as possible, right? So you kind of think of it from that, point of view like okay if i if i want my power to be um i want a highly powered test that means you know i want to minimize those type two errors i'm just talking to circles right now so i'm going to pause there and let, let me know if that's if that's helpful and then we can move forward from there this is extremely helpful so okay. thank you i right. also ask others around too like if they want more clarification as well because i know we're getting into jargon a little yeah. bit for yeah. newer people yeah so what i i'm going to pull up another uh, resource for you here as well um, I got a few here, but so Penn State is the university that I wish I went to, but I didn't get accepted, but I still refer to all of their stuff quite often. Uh, they've got some awesome stuff here. Uh, I'll send you a link to this. So they've got um, how to calculate sample size, right? And they'll give you the different um, formulae, formulae for, I think in this case, they're just looking at normal distribution, uh, but then also on power analysis. Um, this might be able to help you a little bit amazing i've yeah. taken multiple classes on this in grad school and this it just didn't stick well so yeah uh this is great thank you yeah no problem um yeah let me know if i mean i'm happy to uh i think rodney's in the chat so maybe rodney might have a little bit of an insight into that as well because he's uh quite well versed in statistics rodney i don't know if you heard any of the previous amazing. question or not taken multiple classes on this in grad school and this this, this didn't stick well so i don't know what that was that was that an echo or a delay oh uh, hi yeah there you go sorry um i was following you through linkedin and then this came up so i thought i'd better log into the the question yeah, yeah. um i mean what you do is you do have to identify an effect size, but this comes a bit from the problem setting that you have. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, I can perfectly. Yeah, it, so it comes a bit from the particular statistical problem you have. So, you know, are you doing a t-test or are you are you doing, you know, an ANOVA or, or what what is the particular uh, method you're using? And then uh, what you basically do is, I mean, typically you set power. At, um, if you want power to be output, if you want to know the power, then you would you would put in a, a particular sort of effect size and sample size. And if you want to know, if if you specify the power, then it'll it'll tell you the the particular sample size you need when you're doing it that way. So there are a number of there are actually a number of packages. So so what I use, um, and I'll have to I'll have to look this up because I don't have it right to hand. I almost do. Um, there are a number of packages that you can use for this. 
uh, that will calculate it directly. So, so I'm mostly using R for power calculations. And I can just tell you the package that might help you. Um, here we go. So I'm using uh, two packages, one called PWR and one called Power Mediation. So if you look those up, uh, Power Mediation is all lowercase except for the M in mediation. So if you look those up and play around with them, uh, that will give you a bit of, a bit of an idea on, on how to do this. So, so there's different there's different sort of ones depending on on which sort of effect you're looking at. Awesome, thank you, Rodney. Yeah, I see your comments coming yeah. into uh, LinkedIn as well. Um, so yeah, hopefully, combination of uh, everything that was said here plus the links are helpful to you, uh, Mark. So, I got a running start now, so I can play around with the R. Thank you. Yeah, this just I mean it's pretty simple once you once you once you sort of get it. And there's there's some good tutorials on it in R. Um I've looked for Python, but I haven't really found um much on how to do this in Python yet. Yeah. I mean you could always code it yeah, that's, Python I, yourself. I think that's the frustrating thing for me because I know it's simple and I know I'm just overthinking it. And I just need to break through that cycle and just get it down. And once it clicks, I think it'll stick. It, it's simple with sort of simple simple hypothesis testing, but let's say you're wanting to calculate the power for particular coefficients on a regression, then 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 it's it's not at all uh, so simple anymore. Things get more and more complicated as you move up to more sort of sophisticated methods. So um, and and that was that in fact the problem that I had. And so mostly they tell you to use um, R squared or F is, is, is the, the, the effect for that. And then, then you're, you're calculating it on that, which is the overall regression relationship when you might be just interested in a particular coefficient. <laughs> so that's when I switched from, I think, using the power library to using the power mediation library, which gives you a bit more functionality. Yeah. Thank you, Rodney. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully I didn't confuse you anymore, Mark. And hopefully, uh, if I did confuse you, uh, Rodney, uh, clarified stuff. Um, Both are really great. Thank you. Awesome. Let's. Uh, there's a question I missed. There's two questions I missed in the Zoom chat here. Um, so let's uh, let's go to those real quick. So uh, question one is: uh, <laughs> Did I get Jim Quick on the podcast yet? No, man. I'm still working on that. Uh, trying to trying to make that happen soon. Jim Quick, if you're listening. Come on the podcast someday. I know it. Um, question coming in from Mohammed: um, How important do you guys think formal education will be uh, in the coming years? Formal education, just in general, that's a good question. Um, actually, I did an episode on this with uh, Jonaid Iqbal. Uh, he's the founder of No Degree and host of the No Degree podcast. And we're talking about the future of education. Um, so definitely tune into that podcast. It's just called The Future is No Degrees uh, with uh, Janiah Iqbal on my podcast. And I think you'll find that important. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to entice a riot uh, by sharing my views here on this. I mean, like, I think, um, I think formal education will always be important for some fields, right? Like, I would always want 
any medical professional to go through formal education, right? Like I don't, I don't want, I don't want a dentist who took some MOOCs and practiced on, you know, like a, a, a skull and <laughs> started doing shit with my teeth. Like I don't want that to happen. Right. Uh, so definitely those people should go to, through formal education, uh, software engineers, data scientists, I think data science is that important. I mean, sorry, I don't think formal education is that important for those types of fields, mostly because a lot of the stuff that you can learn is freely available online, right? And we've got communities like this where you can bounce ideas and develop and hone your understanding like this, right? Like I doubt dentists get together and like talk about dentists. I don't know, maybe they do, I don't know, no clue. I only know one dentist. Um, but I mean, that's just, you know, just, just saying that. I'm going to pause there before, before I, uh, Say some inflammatory comments and then get people all riled up. Um, but what do you think? What do you think, Mark? I have kind of a follow-up question, maybe that that is yeah. I've been thinking about a little bit. I, I've kind of heard this rumbling about like people who so if you think about advanced degrees, like when you get a PhD in machine learning or data science or in these fields, kind of the sense I'm getting is that like to to especially for the more reputable, like in-person, like traditional education, you kind of already need to be a data scientist or a machine learning engineer. Like you can't just like be an aspiring one and get into those programs. So it almost to me feels like there's an antecedent to this where it's like, you kind of have to figure out some sort of more informal education as a starting point to then get to the point where you could pursue like the formal graduate education. I don't know if anyone else sees that trend in the field or not, but that's just something I've sort of started to pick up on from folks uh, who, are, who are kind of approaching it that way. That's interesting. Um, Mark, what do you think? Um, I love to comment. I think it really depends on the type of data science you want to be. So I think a great example, and this is just my, my, my opinion on this, but like, if you're like a data scientist who's like heavy on like experimental design, I totally think a graduate degree is extremely helpful for that. Um, I can't imagine learning experimental design without doing research at, in academia. That's where it kind of clicked for me. Um, maybe it's just like, I just couldn't learn on my own. Maybe some other people can, but I think you, going through that, that process in academia, at least once, or at least seeing others do it was extremely helpful, but like on broader things, like if you're just doing like analytics and like high level, easy stuff, but many times, a lot of stuff in the data science world, like, especially in the company's early and mature cycle, you don't need advanced stuff. Like you can, a lot of that you can do self-learning. Um, and then if you get in a company like that and they grow, like you can learn on the way as well. So like a lot of the coding, the algorithms, you can learn that on your own. I think when it starts getting to like apply like more advanced methods, that's when a graduate degree is needed, but you have a team of data scientists. So you don't need to be that person. You just need to work with someone who is like that. Yeah. Like I kind of like to set the threshold, like, uh, do I need high level graduate education or not is okay. Does the work that I'm doing involve people's well-being, like, you know, whether there's medical well-being or safety or their freedom or something like that, um, then probably should uh make sure you guys are well educated in that. I'd love to hear what Rodney thinks about this. Um Rodney is a holder of a PhD. It's a difficult question. <laughs> so um Uh, I think the education landscape is changing. So, so, um, and I think there is is huge demand there for for education, which is why you're seeing groups like this springing up. 
Uh, it's an example of people sort of searching for searching for knowledge that traditional education is not necessarily offering them. And, and so, so we have to recognize that there are big changes going on. Some of this predates uh, COVID-19 pandemic and the pandemic has probably reinforced uh, non-traditional forms of education, uh, whereas, and universities have not necessarily adapted particularly well to it. I mean, they're typically what they're doing in teaching is uh, they're using Zoom, uh, but they're just sort of doing the same old thing uh, that they've always done in, in their type, style of teaching. So there's a question as to what extent higher education is going to change going forward and whether people in higher education are going to look at uh, things like this and, and begin to think about incorporating some new approaches into their teaching. So I'm not sure if we're going to see a blend coming out or we're going to see people switching more and more into a whole range of different ways of learning uh, that don't have an awful lot to do with higher education. Uh, so an example here is a few years ago when MOOCs started, um, higher education people thought, okay, there's, there's not a lot of future in these. They're, they're not going to work. Uh, and then what happened was eventually uh, the courses people were taking on things like Coursera uh, and edX and these sorts of places started being accredited by the universities and they then introduced a couple of years after that, they started introducing these micro master's programs uh, where you can do sort of the first stage of a master's degree uh, through an online platform. And then you would switch to sort of a residential platform, uh, residential uh, approach uh, a few years later or a bit later. So, so that's an example of universities blending the two approaches. Um, and and I think I think there is potentially a future in that, but it's going to depend what happens with the pandemic and whether they just go back to business as usual or where whether lessons are drawn from it and they begin to retain quite a bit more of online learning in what they're doing. So so that's that's probably my view. Thank you, Rodney. Uh, Mark, go for it. Um, I think one thing, though, I want to highlight is something that's not you really can't get through a MOOC is the relationship building that you get when going to universities. And you really can't understate that the, the power of being in a cohort and going through something intense at school, um, you start to build really strong relationships with people. Uh, and like I'm still friends with a lot of people from from my undergrad university. And now that we're growing in our careers, now we're thinking about like where business moves we can make together. Um, from grad school, I had a couple of friends and we became co-founders for a business we tried to pursue. It didn't work out, but again, those are the relationships that that forge. And I think this is more so the ickier side of it, but there's a level of nepotism as well, where essentially I'm just trying to call out kind of like the imbalancedness of it. Uh, it's really clicked at me. My first job at a startup, it was one of those startups that like hired from top tier universities. And 
I remember being at the lunch table and being around these other new new grads and they were essentially like, oh, do you know so-and-so, right? And they all, even though they just met today, they all had connections from people at these top tier universities where they went to school together. And I'm coming from somewhere where me and my parents went to college, right? So this is all new to me. And I was like, oh my God, this is how they network. Like they just know each other from being in these like universities, right? And so just being aware, like there's some non-educational things that are very tied to the, the price of going to college. Is it fair? I don't think it is. Is it a reality? 100%. And, and being aware of like those connections can, can potentially help or put you at disadvantage. Uh, Harpreet, can I respond to that? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is, this is often raised as a point, um, but there are a couple, couple of sides to this. One is uh, through group project work, you can begin to form uh, online group project work. You can, you can begin to form those sorts of networks when you're working together on a project. Um, and, and that does tend to build more lasting relationships. Like I've, I've, I've run those projects in online courses myself and, and I've noticed that. Um, another thing is when you look at the networking that you see through the universities, a lot of that does come about because you studied with someone, but also a lot of it comes about through the seminar system, through research seminars. And a lot of those have recently moved online. So you, and they're open, right? What they've done is they've opened them up. So almost anybody can attend uh, the research seminars at top universities. Uh, at least to observe, and you can generally ask questions through chat and that sort of thing. So, so we now have a situation where those networks are, are almost completely broken wide open. And uh, like I attended a, a conference, online conference last year, uh, and we had a social thing at the end uh, through Zoom where we're, we're just all sort of chatting with each other. And exactly what you were describing was going on where they're saying, oh, do you know such and such or such and such? Now, I know some of these people. So, and I didn't know anyone in the group because I, was, I, I joined hoping someone I knew would have turned up and they didn't. So they didn't know me and they were wondering, who are you? And I said, well, I used to work here. And sort of, I know this guy and this guy and, 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 and responded that way. And the more you attend those things, the more you 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 are accepted into into the networks, right? So so that's that's your way in. You 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 attend um, you attend seminars and you uh, you attend conferences, uh, and you know to to sort of get noticed at a conference, you have to present a paper. So you're going to have to put some extra effort in to sort of potentially present a paper. And there, there's potential conflicts then with your employer who may not like you presenting a paper. So, so you have to worry about that. But, but that's, that's basically your way into those networks, right? I just, I just want to know, I put in the chat, consider my opinion change. I appreciate your perspective. Austin, go for it. Yeah, I also would just add to that, that I think um, if you actually look at the mechanisms by the way this happens, I think I kind of take my own experience as, as uh, a signal too. like I'm the head of community at Comet, right? So you see this happening in industry, right? Like these high growth industries that are demanding 
um, particular kinds of talent and a particular growth of a particular labor sector or labor um, set of set of labor um, sort of skills, you know, industries are going to jump in and start creating contributor communities and ways for people to network and to organize because they they need to be a part of training that labor workforce or like providing those opportunities outside of a university system. Um, so you can also look, there's just like different ways that this gets facilitated outside of, of universities, I think now. And it's, it's just so it feels so much more distributed than when, even when I went to college back in like 2008 or nine or whatever it was, um, just, yeah, just all this stuff is so much more distributed. And, and like, I've, I've mentioned this before on, on, on these sessions, but like my job as head of community in the tech world did not exist 10 years ago. Like there were maybe things that people did that were sort of pointed in this direction, but now you see all these companies now community, community, community. And that's, that I think is the underneath it's like, yeah, of course you're branding, but underneath it's like this realization that that's people are hungry for these kinds of networking opportunities, ways to put their name out there. And that's, you know, partly why I'm doing some of the things I'm doing at common in terms of like contributor program and education and, um, connective stuff like this. Um, I mean, I've already spoken to like numerous of you folks offline in different conversations about what we can work on together. Um, and so I think if you look at industry as well, um, that can be a signal as to where this is sort of headed or, or where it has headed. And technology just makes it so much more easier, right? Like it makes it so easy for people to get together from all over the world. Like here, we got people from Australia and, you know, the U S and Canada and Kenya and all over. Right. So it's, it's, it's these barriers are, are breaking down to, to Rodney's point. And also, man, like there's just so much education out there. That's, free to consume. And I mean, one of my favorite sources, I mean, this is probably going off on a tangent based on everything everybody else said, but one of my favorite sources is uh, the great courses. And they've got this package inside of um, Amazon prime and they've got courses that, that go from like elementary math to high level calculus. And they got courses that touch on history and uh, philosophy and all that stuff. It's, it's, if you're curious and if you're interested, you will find places to learn and, and grow. Um, I think that's something that, that cannot be taught. Um, great discussion. Uh, great question. Uh, I forgot who asked that thing. might have been Mohammed. Uh, a lot of questions or comments rather coming into uh, through LinkedIn. Uh, I won't read them all just because there's so many of them. But uh, if you guys are interested, go ahead and check out the LinkedIn thread for this. Uh, a lot of great stuff there. Um, Let's uh, continue on. There's a question here. Um, I think the next question goes to Marin. Marin, yes. go for it. Uh, so, sorry, guys. Uh, typing something. Um, yeah, uh, this came up actually recently. Working with Austin, basically to start on the contributor part of Comet. And there was a question of they have things developed for both TensorFlow and Keras, but in deep learning, I know mostly PyTorch. I work with PyTorch. If I want to switch to Keras, what is a good source to start from? Yeah, I like PyTorch uh, as well. That's um, it's just it's very, I guess, intuitive to. Uh... It's more research kind of thing and. It's, yeah, yeah, it, I, I like it too. Yeah, so I've been learning Keras through. Um, I mean, so again, just 
plugin John's book, Deep Learning Illustrated. So all of his examples here are done in TensorFlow and Keras. And Keras is just like an essentially an API around TensorFlow uh, that just makes it easier to use. Um, so this is a good resource if you want to get started with, with Keras and Deep Learning um, combined. Uh, but in terms of just an actual tutorial strictly for Keras, I, I don't know one um, off the top of my head, but I, I can, I've got a couple here I can link you to. One of them is uh, from Free Code Camp, and it's a uh, Keras with TensorFlow course, and it's about three hours in length. Uh, so the link is right there in the chat. So you can check that out. I think that will be a good, um, good resource. And then the text version uh, is right here as well. So I can link you to these two. I think these will be a good introduction. Um, you know, if you want to get this book, get the book. It's great. Um, you learn a lot about model architecture with with Keras here. Um, so check check that out. Hope that's helpful. Thanks. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah, no problem. Um, let's continue on. There's a uh, question here from uh, from Anti. Anti's question is uh, about data strategy. Um, was what I was doing at my former role and um, hopefully I won't be doing any of that again in the future. Uh, <laughs> that's not what I'm interested in. Um, but did I end up doing a data mature management maturity assessment? Yes, we did. Uh, was there a particular framework we ended up using? Yeah, so I just used the framework that was laid out in DAMA, D-A-M-A, -A, uh, mostly because I, I didn't want to deal with a framework that was tied to a particular consulting organization, um, just because I just did not want to deal with, with that stuff. Uh, so I went with just the DEMA framework, and it goes through level zero through level five. Uh, barring that, the other framework I really like was the one that was laid out from um, uh, in International Institute of Advanced Analytics. That's Tom Davenport's thing. And he had the uh, analytic maturity, um, I guess, framework for, for assessment. So those two are the ones I leverage mostly. Um, but I emphasize the demo one just because it was free, open source, not connected to any particular consulting group um, or anything like that. Uh, I will say, though, my friend George Farrakhan has a great um, course on the various maturity models. Um, highly recommend that course. He goes through like 10 different maturity models uh, and just talks about the pros and cons of each one of those. Um, so highly recommend that. Mark, do you have any experience working with these? data management, maturity assessments, or things like that? I don't have any particular assessments, but um, I put in a link. Data Camp recently came out of a white paper that I thought was really good. Uh, the quick bias is that they're trying to convince you to purchase their services for training yeah, <laughs> to, to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. But if you, if you get past that point, they have some really great arguments and great kind of frameworks within there. In addition, there's a recent blog post. I'm going to go try to find it and share it, share it in the chat. But essentially, they came up with a, a scenario of a manager coming into a company and, and making them more data mature. So it's not necessarily frameworks, but it's some great resources to learn more about that. And I, I would love to learn. I know, I know you're part of the Slack, the Slack community. When you find those, please share that because I'll be interested in myself. Um, I, 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 it's kind of silly. I didn't realize like, there are frameworks to, to, to measure this, which is interesting. I just thought it was like a state of being of like where you are. But now that I think about like totally some, some consultant will make a product around this. So, right. <laughs> so and it makes a lot of sense because we talk, we talk a lot about it. Um, 
I'm just curious. I think I think a more maybe a potentially more fruitful conversation is like if you can't talk about it, where do you currently think your your data maturity is at today, and like where are you trying to go? And if you can't talk about that, I'm more than happy to talk about it at the company I'm at. <laughs> yeah, I think Auntie might be uh, unable to chat right now. It seems like he's out on the road. Um, he says he's reading Modern Data Strategy at the moment and thinking about which one to try and sell at work. Yeah, Modern Data Strategy, good book. I unfortunately had to return all my data strategy and data management books back to price on my last day because they bought me all those books. Thank you. Um, but also, thank you for bringing up that space on my bookshelf. Um, uh, but if you want to talk about your particular uh, situation or use case, um, Mark, I mean, if, if you're open to chatting about that, you're happy, happy to hear. Definitely. So I'm at a startup. Uh, and, the, and the key thing is that, you know, being at a startup, the big thing is product market fit and trying to understand, you know, what is a, uh, when you build features, does it align with the market and what they need and what, the, what they want to pay for it? And so thinking back to allow, like a, a great person to follow for data strategies, Ben, um, I took his business strategy course. I think Harper, you're there as well. Um, it was really great. And it, it really, the kind of key thing that, that reminded me of is what's your business model and how does data fit within that? And that's going to be very true for when you are in a startup because there's so much ruthless prioritization happening in a startup. Everything's on fire. Everything needs to be built. So like what do you build today and put out today? And so where, where data fits within that informs how much kind of like uh, resources can be put towards infrastructure. And so for, for us, like we, we have like a data warehouse. I, we're able to do a lot of SQL. And so then now we're building data features and products so that we can capture data to actually start doing a lot more like advanced analytics and cool things with that even more so than we're currently doing. And so the past six months, I've actually had one main kind of OKR, and that is to increase data access for the entire company. And so a lot of my role was interviewing a lot of people within our company of like, what are your use cases? What's working, what's not working, right? Surfacing those pain points, consolidating that to a main problem point, and then creating proof of concepts of like, all right, this is the framework for our business that I want us to move forward with. Getting buy-in for that, some things not getting buy-in because again, prioritization and working within those constraints and then delivering on that. So my project's actually wrapping up this week of like improving access. And what that looked like for me was creating data marts of our, of our data that's like really curated, uh, training people throughout the company on SQL, and in addition, for people who are not going to learn SQL, I created dashboards to better understand our data in a, in a curated fashion and ability for them to download it directly into Google Drive. So that way they have access to data to reduce the amount of data requests, right? And so that's shifting people in the data maturity cycle where they're, before we were in a state of like, people constantly had to go to data science to understand their data needs. So now people now have resources to either pull the data themselves with SQL or pull it through dashboards and only give requests for data science for like paid analytics or really advanced things. And so that's where we're kind of on a data maturity cycle is like, how can you find the main pain point and move the needle slightly forward? That yeah, was a dude, long explanation. No, that was beautiful. I absolutely love that. And I mean, when you, and just, you guys are already pretty mature, I would say. Um, I mean, again, you're a tech company, so you kind of bake that in. 
yeah um, from the get-go but, but we're not facebook <laughs> yeah, not definitely yeah definitely uh i mean yeah they're, they're on next level but um everything you're describing like if we put that in the context of like the the dama framework that would be like a level two and a half level three ish type of maturity and we had to do the exact same thing at my last job is i spent uh, well over a month interviewing i think 25 different stakeholders and then taking those interviews we recorded every one of them transcribed them cleaned up the transcripts and then took the transcripts and um we scored the conversation uh, based on some several different dimensions uh, to, to figure out what this particular individual was prioritizing for the department and then aggregated that for the entire company and uh, started to develop some type of um as mark was saying some type of initiative to move the needle forward it's a lot of work uh, Auntie says that at the very beginning of the journey, uh, it's a long uphill struggle. Uh, try to get buy-in from the top as, as quickly as you possibly can, because otherwise, man, life is going to suck. Um, for for me, I actually, of, oh, go ahead. I was just going to give a follow. No, go ahead, Mark. I, I, I have a follow-up question, but it can it can definitely go ahead. I was about to say, talking about buy-in and being a startup, I got buy-in for this major project and infrastructure piece. And the week before I was about to start it, it got cut because we had another priority jump in. So that's another thing. It's just, it's so much of its timing and it's still gonna happen, but like rightfully so it got deprioritized. And I completely agree with it. So the point of it being a long journey, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's long and rough to, to move that maturity over, but it's so worthwhile once you get the pieces that you do have in place in. Yeah, um, cool. I, I think this sort of, feeds into because I was just thinking about what you were talking about earlier and I wanted to circle this back around because I think like taking the approach of you know put something put a bunch of assumptions up quickly um how does that sort of approach and I mean it could just be different and this is a different task entirely and a more long-term thing but do you see any any parallels there in terms of like you know um using those interviews to formulate quick assumptions test them circle back and, and over this longer term I would, i'm just kind of curious like tying that sort of more abstract perspective about the work into this particular example because that's really interesting to me um 100 so it's kind of my bias and i talked about this earlier in, in a previous i talked about how like design thinking's really shaped how i approach problems and more importantly like i i got trained in entrepreneurship and innovation so i'm like certified in that from uh, from from business school, and I did this two month training, like really shaped how I approach all my problems. And so I approach every single problem as if I'm a startup startup of one delivering a product. <laughs> and so whether it's a data science one off project where I'm doing analysis, you know that's a product I'm serving to an end user, even though it's a one off analysis. And I'm gonna ask those questions that surface what's the real need, what's the product market fit, right? Same thing when I'm trying to develop like the goal, my service as a startup within my company is to increase data access <laughs> um, and move maturity. And so one of the first steps as uh, if you have a startup idea, right, is that you need to understand who's your customer and what are their needs of that customer and what product or service can, can deliver on those needs and capture value, right? And through that, Steve Blank, he's like, you got to do 100 user interviews. There's not hundred people I can interview at my company. So I prioritize like, all right, here's like the 25 or the 20 people I can talk to and prioritize that. I work with my manager, my advisor, of my board of my startup, right? And say like, hey, here's the people I'm strategizing and talk to Do you think this is the most impactful. And from there, these are like my business assumptions about the market where, you know, I believe these are the valuable things 
But with these hypotheses, I'm going to go test those business hypotheses out and go talk to people and iterate. I'm like, oh, actually, people don't care about X, Y, Z. They actually really care about this one component. Or when I talk to a collection of people, this one person was very vocal about this, but other people were very vocal about these other things as a collection, right, of the market. And my market is internally my, my company. And so essentially from there, that's how I'm testing my assumptions and iterating quickly um, on what a potential solution will look like. In addition, similar to like a startup is like, I'm trying to build buy-in and both buy-in and awareness of my product, right? So our company, we have these things called drinking demos. So every two weeks you demo things you've worked on, right? It can be very raw. And so for each iteration, I demoed it <laughs> at my company to build buy-in and get the messaging across data access, data access. This is how we're thinking about data access. Hey, two weeks have gone by. This is how we iterate on this data access, right? And so now the whole company is aware, the market is aware of all of the, um, all of the work and all the direction trying to go in to build that buy-in. And then you build the product, get feedback. And then finally, after you get this POC out, um, you know, your, your MVP, right? Now you go out to, to the market, try to sell it, you know, and those are the decision makers. So like the head of such and such, right? And then from there you negotiate on what's the product you're gonna sell. And so um, it's a different perspective, but at least just how I approach everything is like as a startup owner. Dude, that, that's that's awesome. Inspired. And that's, that's exactly, that's so much of what I'm struggling with or, or struggling with or, or working through at Comet. Cause I was like the first hire on the growth side of the business and first full-time hire and use engineering sales. And I have to build, I have to figure out a way to do all of that and get the buy-in internally. And that's like new to me. So that's a really good perspective. I really, really appreciate that. Cause there is a lot of like, do a thing, experiment, iterate, see how it goes, build a, you know, MVP of a, of a community program versus a, you know, a software yeah. or, or an engineering solution. So it's just like a great perspective. And I think like, that's something I can definitely take into my work. Cause sometimes it feels in collection, like a daunting, overwhelming thing, but there, to, to hear from you and, and sort of get that perspective, like there is this sort of way to approach this that's more, you know, like more kind of thoughtful from that direction is like super, super helpful. So thanks for sharing yeah. that, Mark. And, and something I'm slowly building, I'm trying to create a workshop on this and actually sell this um, through my own uh, sneak peek. I'm starting my own uh, website and stuff like that. It's <laughs> working on it, slowly working on it. But one of the frameworks I, I tried to break this down, it's called the tribe framework. And so T-R-I-B-E, where T is talk. You talk to your stakeholders to determine what's a need or they come to you with a need and you talk through it. Um, R is requirements. So you build out and hypothesize what those requirements are. So those, when I'm creating like a table shell, um, I'm doing a, a, a paint of like what exactly, uh, what exactly like the output should be. And I get those requirements really down really fast and then eyes iterate. So I go back to the stakeholders and talk again and go through the requirements until we get aligned on something. B is I actually build it. And then finally, E is evangelize. So I try to like take this idea that we built and evangelize, get everyone bought into it. And so that's the tribe framework. Yeah, that is fire, man. I like that. So I'm, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm creating a Hell blog. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to do some talks. In some of my podcasts, I mentioned it a little bit. But uh, hopefully I'm aiming in a few months to create a whole workshop where I'll teach you how to go through that with different use cases, whether you're new in data science, you're someone in data science trying to crush your projects, 
or you're a manager trying to figure out a framework to describe to your 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 direct reports. Dude, that's awesome, man. I love that. Austin, we should add, we should do some some. I'm, I'm there. Yeah, we should definitely. <laughs> I think there's so many. It, that sounds like something that applies not just to data science, but to sort of like nascent parts of any organization or, or things that are maybe have less visibility and are trying to build sort of like internal credibility and an internal narrative around that you're doing. And especially for me, like the thing I struggle with is like things that are not typically data driven. Like a lot of the stuff I do is qualitative. It's relational. So like a way to a framework that's unique, that sort of presents it as uh you know, we're going through these steps in this process. Some parts of it might be qualitative, but it, the aggregate is this sort of more uh, quantitative way of scoring that approach. So, I mean, I could see that appealing to like not just data careers, but also a lot of other uh, sort of nascent um, spaces as well. So it's, that's super yeah. cool. Definitely, so, definitely. Sl- slowly, love to talk about that slowly more. work on it. Yeah, <laughs> nice. slowly, slowly nice. work on it. And I guess this comes from like that training from that business program I did. And yeah. also all the mistakes I made. And so this is like the game <laughs> sure. plan I would give to my myself when I first became a data scientist to not make all the mistakes I made. Nice. Yeah, absolutely love that, man. Yeah. And uh, like, you want me to put you in touch with, with Kate? You present that dedicated, man. I think that'll be awesome to have there. Oh yeah, I would love it. Let, let me let me get that blog out and yeah. and get just get get it written out so other people can see. And also I can get some iteration and feedback on it. But I would love to, I would love to present that because I think it'd be really helpful for 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 people who are new, just to think about like, how do I just like take a request and actually deliver and get buy-in to really accelerate your career? That's so good, man. Mark, thank you so much for sharing that. I'll be excited to see, uh, see what this course when it comes out. I'm, I'm, I'm there, man. Sign me up. Uh, and that's so good. Uh, question coming in from Asha. Did Asha, you know, Asha's still there. Um, go for it, Asha. Yeah. Uh, no, I was actually asking if anyone has actually had the chance to use neural networks at work. I haven't had the chance, but that's because I'm very fixed in my ways also sometimes. Has anyone had the chance to use this at work and how did it help? Yeah, I've never had the opportunity to use that at work. And a lot of the data scientists that I know um, that work on like actual business problems and stuff who are not at uh, big tech companies also don't get a chance to to implement these type of methodologies in, in their day-to-day work, which is why I'm so excited about this opportunity at Comet, because now I get to get good at deep learning and, and neural networks and stuff like that. Um, I, I believe that's like the future of, of you know, AI is, is that, um, I don't know, like Mark or, or Rodney, have you guys used these methodologies uh, at work? Martin. No, <laughs> startup. <laughs> I, I I know people who have, and they're crazy smart, and they have like a very specific use case. Um, I can try to reach out to them and try to connect if you're interested. Uh, but <laughs> neural networks are so complicated to put into production and and maintain that I feel like that's for the data maturity kind of conversation. You need to be far on the data maturity side to be doing yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, and like most of the problems I was working on, you know, last few years weren't so complex that they required these advanced methodologies. It would be overkill to try to use those. Uh, but Rodney, what would you? Um, well, a few years ago, uh, I had a student and we were doing a, a neural network project related to finance. So, so that's, that's in, in an academic role where we used it, which is probably more likely. And then with the stuff I'm doing now, um, I had a problem 
a price prediction problem I was working on a couple of years ago, and they wanted us to use more sophisticated methods than than Arama was was what I was told to do, right? <laughs> Which is a bit a bit sort of a an odd task request. So um, what I did there is I was evaluating a number of different methods. And so I looked at things like random forests, and then I looked at uh, uh, support vector regression as, as an option. And I ended up going with support vector regression. But uh, I also began looking at using Keras uh, to implement a, a neural network for that. But um, I basically, it, it was becoming too complicated. So, uh, so I, I, I sort of stepped back from it. Uh, but I need to return to that. So, so, so one of the things to upgrade that particular model is is to uh, add a neural network component to some of what we're doing. So, so I will be doing it, but I haven't haven't had the time to actually get it working. I mean, it's difficult because you know it's really time consuming to do the neural neural, neural network type type stuff. So, or or it can be really time consuming. I'm, uh, I understand my different types of networks well, then for a time series type of problem, you're probably looking at like a recurrent neural network or LSTM type of methodology, make that work, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much right. I mean, there, there is another option, which uh, if you're doing it in R, is uh, uh, Rob Heinemann's forecasting package actually has a neural network uh, set up built into it. It's not deep learning stuff, but but you can... So basically, do a switch on it and 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 set up a, a simple neural network in that. So so that would be the quickest way to sort of do it. But this isn't the only thing I have to do. So so yeah. <laughs> if it was the only thing I have to do, I would have done it by now. But we we we've just not had the time because because other things have been a priority. Mark, go for it. Yeah, so I just want to provide the interesting use case of, of like deep learning and neural networks. For the longest, I was like, what's the point of doing this? Like, why, why are we doing this when like much simpler things work better? And my opinion was finally changed when uh, I, I talked to this like head of analytics at Pepsi. And basically he was saying, this is for like the, the online presence. And basically what he was saying was essentially like, the reason why we do this like super complicated approach is because when you're working at this scale and you have competitors like Coca-Cola or these other big names, just that extra 1% can mean like a huge competitive advantage. And so that's the right like business use case. So like if you're trying to get the first 80%, right? Neural networks is overkill. But once you start competing at the point where like the difference between like 90 and 91% accuracy means like millions of dollars and like a competitive advantage in the market. That's when the business use case starts to override the hurdles of like implementing these problems. And when, when that person described that, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. That's why like the Googles and the Facebooks, and these big tech companies are doing it because they're competing at a stage where those, those percents, they've already figured out the product market fit. Right. And so now they're trying to expand their market, not trying to find their market. And so the deep learning neural networks give them the ability to expand their market just such where they can outcompete their competitors. 
And so I think that was an interesting kind of business use case. And so like for me as a startup, we're not, we're not trying to expand the pie. We're trying to find the pie. Um, and our bread and butter isn't like our product isn't neural networks itself. Right. So I think that was just an interesting thing I wanted to add but that convinced me why deep learning is so important. Yeah. I mean, just the, the part from the business use cases and, and stuff like that, like, Oh, Rodney, go for it. Um, no, finish first and then I'll, I'll comment. Yeah, and I was going to say, apart from like all the business use cases, deep learning is just fascinating in, in terms of what it can do, right? Like, I, I think there's so much potential for deep learning to help augment and enhance human creativity. Like, you look at these generative models, like there's this, you know, there's, there's like the speculation that Spotify is using deep learning to create fake artists to pump out music. And I'm convinced that one of these artists is Lemon Pie because nothing exists about lemon pie, but the music is so good. I love it so much. Um, but those are interesting use cases, right? Like how can we use deep learning to help generate interesting music? Or there's another platform called Jarvis AI, which is like a AI copywriter where you upload some text and it'll help you write a blog post, right? Um, so th that's my, that's the area that I'm really fascinated in for deep learning is those generative models. And then, then also applications to, um, for you know financial trading and stuff like that, I think that's fascinating as well. Um, but yeah, go for Rodney. Uh, so um, I, I should add that um, in another one of our divisions where I work, uh, what they're doing is uh, they're they've got a couple of pilot projects where they're outsourcing uh, all of the machine learning work. So uh, what what is what is happening there is they're either outsourcing to government research organizations, NGOs are increasingly uh, using machine learning in some of their work. And uh, also uh, uh, in talks with a company to do, uh, to outsource another aspect of it. So there is neural network going on, but but a lot of it is is simply being outsourced to specialists. So, yeah. Yeah. Um just to push on the creativity thing, I was trying to find this link. Um, I mean, it's something similar to what Drew was working on at, um, at Comet with that type yeah, in a text yeah. representation of, uh -huh. of what you want, and it'll create something. Um, I forgot the person who did this. There's a Google Colab notebook. If I can find it real quick, I will share it. Um, but essentially what he did was uh, he, like, he's, he created this, uh, this generative network where you just type in, like, he typed in something like, uh, a library in a forest in the in the style of Thomas Kincaid, and then the generative model created this beautiful painting. And so there's there's a book that I'm currently reading. Uh, it's somewhere on my desk here, um, and listening to uh, the Creativity Code by uh, Marcus Dussault-Trois or something like that. I can't say his last name, um, but that book is so good, and it talks about all these different use cases of deep learning um, for helping augment human creativity. And yeah, just fascinating. I have a quick yeah, question. You... Oh, go ahead, Austin. Yeah, that's okay. I was just going to comment on what you were saying about our, our project. I'm, I'm very partial. I've been a little bit obsessed with it. It's just kind of a fun thing. Um, yeah, it's clipdraw.comet.ml. Clipdraw and so I, like, I think generally the general point is what you're seeing is like these sort of large transformer models is I think what we're talking about, like the GPTs and the, the sort of language models and then these sort of um, literally transforming in the sense of like text to image or text to audio or whatever it is. And so I think what you're seeing is like these implementations and what we're really excited about at Common is like the ways you can implement and instrument those models 
and then create sort of like what we're trying to do is create a public gallery of things people have submitted and then also keeping track of the like the sort of input parameters so like what they actually end up resulting in too so it's like it's not just a thing you share on twitter but it's actually like a public repository of how these generative models can be used in different for different prompts and different um sort of input compare like hyperparameter comparisons and then sort of also watching the evolution of how the neural network actually draws what you're creating in, in sort of in, across steps of training on this individual sample. And so like, and then you see this, I think there's a, there's a hugging face, there's spaces now where it's just like live demos of models sort of using some of these technologies. And they have like a VQ GAN one, which is another sort of generative model that does a slightly different style of art. So you're seeing like different styles of art, different mediums, different, all this kind of stuff. And, and then I think the next step is to sort of create this meta layer on top of that, where you use other tools and platforms to sort of help present those to the world in different ways. So it's not just the output, it's also the way it's packaged and the way it's presented as sort of like a gallery or a, you know, as a crypto art sort of thing as well. Like there's all these different avenues now um, and we'll see which kind of ones kind of win out. But I think that's the next level of this is like, okay, these generative models actually work and they're pretty badass. And now it's like, they'll keep improving but it's also like how do you, what's the medium they get expressed through um so that's why i'm like kind of obsessed with this project we did last week yeah, <laughs> just to plug a, that it's super fascinating um like i'll pull this up the clip draw real quick let me just pull on the screen real quick so guys check it out clipdraw.comet.ml um this is uh probably need to get some um more instructions like what do we do like the seed yeah. put like 42 yeah Yep. There's like a blog post on this, but basically the only thing you really need to enter is a prompt and the rest of it is sort of optional parameters. Um, and we have a, a, a little glossary on a blog post that I could share as well. And of course with a milkshake, nice. let's see what happens. <laughs> um, but then while, while this is, uh, while this is running here, oh, queued up, uh, I found the, uh, the post I was looking at. So this right here, uh, Tyler Swarot, Sward, Sward, I can't say his name. Um, so this was a generative, uh, painting just done through what's called doll E. Um, and this is literally, he just said a forest and a library in the style of Thomas Kincaid and the generative model made this, which is super fascinating. Um, but yeah, it's so, so interesting, man. Deep learning is so fascinating when, when it comes to how it can help human creativity. Uh, Mark, go for it. It is more so like a philosophical question, but do you see this replacing the art world or as being a subgenre within the art world? Uh, especially when like a big piece of the art world is um, scarcity. And so by the ability of like AI creating amazing pieces of artwork that are like tailored to people's like wants and desires and can happen quickly, the role of scarcity goes away, right? And so I guess like, I guess the overall question is like, with art being so easy to create through these models what you know what's the value of art um moving forward with this i mean i as someone who enjoys art as a dancer and performer used to want to be an animator at one point like i love art right but like what does this mean as an industry when um it's that end day that art art is a business right like what does that mean for it yeah dude that, that's something that uh marcus deuce swata talks about in, in his book, The Creativity Code, I'll just right there, I'll go grab it in a second. But he talks about exactly what you're addressing. And he's talking about a AI uh, painting that sold for like $150,000 or something like that, right? And there's these paintings that are just so beautifully drawn and, uh, and, and just so emotive that when people were told it was done by AI, they felt cheated, they felt wrong for some reason. 
Um, so he's also done a bunch of talks on the creativity code. Um, one of them is like 15 minutes. And he has the audience look at two sets of artwork, one set created by a uh, hu humans, one set created by AI. And just the AI stuff was so much more evocative and so crazy looking and so, so interesting. Um, you know, definitely check, check that out. I'll give you a link to that. And then there's also, um, he's talking about there's the, a model uh, that was created, which was trained on Rembrandt data, right? And it was trained just on Rembrandt's painting and it generated its a, a painting in the style of Rembrandt on its own. It was just stunning. Like it looked just like a Rembrandt style. Uh, face looked kind of weird on on the person, but yeah, I mean, I, I think if humans can interact with, I mean, if you think about it, right, like the human created the model, the human created the algorithm, right? Human came up with the idea. That is art in itself right there, right? That creativity to say, okay, here's a, here's something I want to try to do. Here's how I'm going to do it. Here's the methodologies I'm going to use and here's final output. Like that entire pipeline is all human creativity, right? So it might be generated by an algorithm, might generate generated by a model, but that model is not inspired. It doesn't have a, a it's not moved to create something. It's not compelled to create something. Um, but the human behind it, you kind of get that that you feel that in the code. I don't, I don't know if I'm making sense, man. Uh, but Oh, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm imagining like a service. Like if you have like I've I've lately been seeing like uh where you pay for a subscription service to have like digital paintings in your in your house. And it's like they're charging like $30 a month to just have like access to digital paintings. But I imagine something similar where you can like similar with my lights where I'm like, I want pink lights, right? You could do something along the lines like I want artwork that looks like XYZ with this feeling because I have a dinner party with this theme, right? Yeah. <laughs> um I think there's a cool business applications of all of this. Oh, dude. I mean, think about like a music platform where, okay, you select your 10 different favorite artists and now we're going to create artificially generated music based on your 10 different artists that you like and create music designed just for your taste. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, based on your particular moods and, and so on. I know you're moving to ML, uh, comma ML, but let's start a business on this now. <laughs> hey, definitely, man. That's joking, right. joking. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull this up. Here is my, uh, here's my random forest with a milkshake, happening live in action, and that, that looks pretty. Like that's way better than I would be able to ever draw. That's for sure. It's a random forest with a milkshake, and you can see there's trees, there's forest. Here's like the milkshake going on. Uh, that's super cool, man. Just to see this happen live and in action. Um, but yeah, man, there's so many different use cases with, with deep learning that, that, you know, help augment human creativity that just blows my mind and is fascinating, um, especially with tech stuff, right? Like I can imagine, again, like I was just exploring this Jarvis AI software. I was like, okay, what if I start? Cause what, one thing I was planning on doing was create a model to help take my transcripts from all of my happy hours and office hours and just come up with like interesting articles from that. Um, but then I found this company, Jarvis AI, that does it. And, you know, it's like a hundred bucks a month or whatever, but I'm going to test it out and just see what happens. Cause that's so fascinating, right? It just, it helps me a lot, right? Because I feel like I'm the kind of person that's like a remixer, right? Like I'll, t like, it's hard for me to just come up with something from scratch on a blank sheet, but I can look at several different things and combine them in interesting ways and, and create something original from that. And so having an algorithm or a model where I just 
put in a bunch of text data and it spit something out. And I'm like, okay, great. Now I got something to work with. Now I can like play around with this and add my own twist and add my own style to it. Um, but it, it, it helps get started, right? That's, that's. Yeah, I, um, I did something very similar to this. I think it was with the GPT too. So I need to actually revisit this. I found like one of these like, you know, streamlit web apps or whatever. Um, and I, so I wrote a book of poems in grad school and published a book of poems. And so what I did was what I thought would be really interesting was to, um, was to take all like the first line or first two lines of those poems that usually have some sort of image in them or some sort of um, narrative sort of structure. And then just seeing what the model spits out on the back end and see if I could like do version two of my, like the, the machine learning version of my, of my book of poems and sort of like, like the remix edition or something like that. That was kind of fun. So this is stuff like that, where you can kind of take, yeah, take what's already here or what's already been produced and sort of re-envision it or just see what happens. It's just fun to even just see what happens. Um, and, and even just taking away the, the, the quality assessment of it is just kind of fun to see. Something I've been really playing around in my head is taking GPT-2 and taking all my post content and shoving it in that, in that model and doing like a 30 days of GPT-2 where I just post on LinkedIn using the API, this AI generated post and see what happens. And it's kind of put like, hey, disclaimer, this is built by AI and then putting the GitHub link in there. But I feel like that would be super interesting and also give me a break for 30 days to focus on some other things. <laughs> hey, man, that's cool. I like that. I like that a lot, man. I would do that too, actually. Just just feed AI a bunch of, feed GPT-3 a bunch of aphorisms and just have computer-generated aphorisms happen like daily and posted on my behalf on Twitter. That'd be interesting. Um, I mean, here's the book though, The Creativity Code. Um, so this book, I, I, I listened to it on Audible. I liked it so much that I, you know, I, I bought the physical copy as I tend to do. Um, and some of the stuff that this book touches on. Uh, so one thing he talks about, there's like three different types of creativity. And then he proposes what's called the Lovelace test, which is how can we tell if something is artistic? Um, so it's very, very good. And he talks stuff about painting by numbers, uh, music, the process of sounding mathematics, a songwriting formula, uh, language games, let AI tell you a story. Um, super fascinating stuff. So. Um, I'll be, uh, so the, the last day, day 21 of um, 21 days of deep learning is all about uh, AI and creativity. So I'll be talking a little bit about the stuff in this book um, in that last post. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and start wrapping things up. It's been, been a great, great, um, great session, man. It's already been an hour, 45 minutes. Uh, so guys, uh, remember tune in 21 days of deep learning. Um, got a whole 21 days of uh content lined up um again like i said i'm i'm creating the content on the day of i haven't pre-made content or anything like that um but that's not to say that i won't do that i might have you know i might create a, a few uh, days worth of stuff in advance um but definitely tag along and uh follow along looking forward to sharing that journey with uh with all of you guys yeah i guess that's it i see some questions trickling in on LinkedIn, um, one of them was checking out deep learning usage in the field of GIS. I have not, um, but that's something interesting. If you find something interesting on that, please let us know. Please post the book title and the author. Book title is uh, The Creativity Code, Art and Innovation in the Age of AI. I think if you have Audible Prime or whatever it's called, Audible Premium, uh, I think it's included in, in that. Can't remember, but it's really, really good. So definitely check it out. Highly recommend it.
yeah. So guys, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Remember, my friends, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Bye.